let's look into this book. Let's go back and see if there are some helpful principles to bring, hopefully, some encouragement, some exhortation, and some ballast to, to our souls right now, to our weary souls. So if you, if you oblige me this morning, it's a little bit different of a message. I'm going to be taking us through points that, for, for many of you guys who've been here for this series, they're going to be reminders. But as we all probably know, it's not new truth that we usually need. It's just old truth that the Spirit makes new, you know, in us as, he, as, he, as His Holy Spirit blows on the Word of God and makes it alive in us again. So, that's what we need Him to do, right? I mean, I can get up here and, and wax badly or wax well, but if the Spirit doesn't blow His holy breath on the Word of God into our hearts, then we're not affected. We all know that. So, let's go to Him together right now and ask Him, Lord, would you please make your Word effective in our hearts? Lord, we just ask you to meet us this morning. I pray that you would, uh, by your grace, feed your people. Lord, I pray that you'd have mercy on me. That even now, as I look at this message, if there are things that I intend to say that you don't want said, if there are things that... I'm not intending to say that you once said that your spirit would work in the moment. I pray that together with everybody in this room. God, I thank you so much that you are a patient and long-suffering God. You are not a fair-weather friend. You are not that kind of God. You are a God of the valley. You are a God in the desert. You are a God in the trenches. You love faithfulness. You love steadfast, long-suffering care. You want it in us because it's in you. It is one of the most beautiful things about you, Lord, if not the most beautiful thing. It's just you are faithful with struggling people, with suffering people, with sinful people. You are faithful and you are long-suffering. And we pray, God, that this morning you would be faithful to us through your word and you would minister to us through your holy word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, before we go into the bulk of this message, I want to lay down a few qualifiers that are really important to me that you guys would know. First, I'm not preaching this morning to criticize or even change the mind of anyone who has left our church or is thinking about leaving our church. Like, I'm just not. Anyone who's been in our church the last few years, you know, knows it's been, in some ways, it's been a hard road. Um... We're not in Mosul, you know, <laughs> we're not being persecuted by ISIS, but, but it's not been an easy time for us for, for a long time now. And so I, I don't, I wouldn't begrudge anyone who would feel unsettled and who would sense that maybe God is calling them, you know, to a different thing. And so I, I'm just not looking at you if that's you or if you're hearing this after the fact through others or on the website, that's, that's not what I'm doing this morning. I'm not criticizing people who've left our church or thinking about leaving the church. There are good reasons to leave a church. There are bad reasons to stay at a church. 
how you treat your church family is vitally important because every local church is Christ's bride, precious and blood-bought. And, and so oftentimes it's not, it's not necessarily if you stay or if you go, it's how you are staying or how you are going that matters as much, if not more. And the truth is, this isn't the only true local church there, in Frederick. And may the Spirit of God, as Greg was talking to me about this yesterday, you know, our hope is that whether you're here for the long haul because God's given you faith, or whether you have a sense that he's calling you away because God's given you faith, that you would do that in faith, that you would do what you're doing in faith, and, and that he would guide your steps, and the Holy Spirit would give you wisdom and love on, on the way. So wherever you are in that sense of where God's calling you to, I hope you will see something in these truths for you because I hope they transcend wherever you land, you know, in this season. But I just want to make sure that, you know, there's, there's no intent to critique here. Secondly, I'm not trying to, uh, in this pulpit, make, I won't be trying to make arguments about various governmental forms for the church or, or particular leaders. Or it, There's a place to discuss and even debate those things, but I hope you'll see the principles today are, are, are from God's word. They transcend disagreements that Christians or we might even have about how to do church, so to speak. So this isn't going to get into the, the mechanics of that. And lastly, just a personal note, and this is really important to me, and I hope this is a little bit... I hope you'll indulge me on this one. Wherever there is convicting truth in this message this morning, please know that I speak as one probably needing that conviction along with you or more than you or maybe more than anyone else. Luther said that we as believers are supposed to be always repenting, that repentance isn't a one-act thing that you do when you're saved. It's a lifestyle. And I feel like I, in some ways I could have called this message lessons I am learning. You know, personal lessons I'm learning to grow closer to Christ, to, to flee the flesh and to move towards Jesus. Um, and so I don't think there's actually been a message in this series that hasn't opened up areas that I see that I need to be constantly working on to follow Christ. I, I'm not preaching a word this morning that I myself am not in need of sitting under. And so I just, I just want you to hear that. This isn't an attempt for me to get over the church and say, correct, correct, correct. If there's anything of that nature that's exhortative or it feels like a call from the Lord, I, I hope and I hope that it's out of a good heart and also just wanting you to know, like I said, this is a place that I need to be. I need to be hearing these things. Um, I need to be semper repente, always repenting. Um, so th- there's no attempt to finger point here or call people out or th- th- suddenly, you know, subtly get some message to you. So those are the three biggest just before I go into the text's points I want to make. So with that, our traditional triad of points. Um, we've got three points this morning that I've kind of scoured over the, the book so far and thought to bring back in. Um, and the first point is this. I, I, I just headed this. Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? This is from 1 Corinthians, uh, the first chapter. Kind of the principle here is just basically that whether you're in this church, whether you're out of this church, wherever you are, Christ is not divided, and nor then should be his children. Christ is not divided, and nor then should be his children. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 13. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollo, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? So this whole section is just, it's like a duh section. You know, it's just... I just want to try to exalt before myself and before you, my brothers and sisters, this fundamental truth that I think I and I think we can just take so easily for granted. And that's just this simple truth that Jesus Christ cares deeply, deeply, deeply about our unity. He loves our unity as his bride. He, he loves our unity. He is jealous for our unity. Jesus Christ poured out his blood to achieve unity. Among his people. Whether we're in the same local church. With brothers and sisters. Or we're dealing with a family in Christ. From across the country. In different denominations. Or across the city. Unity and faith. Our common belief in Christ. In his gospel. And the unity in love. For each other. That's rooted in that reverence for Jesus Christ are at the very center of the desires of Jesus' heart. You might remember that Jesus prayed before Gethsemane in John 17. Before he sweated drops of blood in that olive garden, he prayed this prayer in front of his disciples for you and for me. And this is what he said. This is what was on Jesus' heart before he was nailed to the cross. This is almost the last words in John that we have of Jesus saying before He is put to death on the cross. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So what's on Jesus' heart as he goes to the cross is not simply, Lord, you're my father, I want to do your will. It's not simply, Lord, I want to forgive the world. I want to win a people for your name. It is, I want my people to belong to each other in unity, the way that my father and I belong to each other in unity, with that same love. That's what I want for my people. That's what I'm pouring my blood out for. As Fred said to me yesterday on the phone, he reminded me, you know, it just was a great, simple sentence. Jesus did not die for individuals, he died for a church. And that's so easy to forget, especially in our Western mindset. You know, we're, we, we all, we understand the individualistic ideal in the West a lot more in ways that we're not even really conscious of. But, but just that truth, Jesus did not die for individuals. He died for a church. A big church. Every race, every tongue, every tribe, every nation. One church. Coming back to the First Corinthians passage this morning that we're talking about, is Christ divided? Paul's making this argument that if Christ has one mind, if he has one heart, if he has one wisdom and one will and one desire 
if he's unified and not a fractured person, then it must follow logically that those who are truly seeking him would be growing into one mind and one heart. That would be evidence that they're growing into him, a oneness. And so when that's not happening, Paul is saying something is just fundamentally wrong. He's not calling out this group or that group necessarily, but he's just saying, I mean, in Corinthians, he calls them all out. But but it's just, it doesn't work. The logic breaks down. Paul, he, he sees this as so logical. Jesus is one, so you need to be one. He he makes it so simple, it's almost offensive. Listen to what he says. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I mean, I read that, and I'm like, okay. Well, then, well, well, okay, then. We'll just agree, you know. I mean, that's not all he's saying. He's going to spend, what, 15 chapters trying to unpack that and make that happen. But... But in this, when I look at that passage, I just want to say, Paul, that's naive. I mean, don't you know that we've been having church fights and church splits since, well, since you wrote this letter? <laughs> what about John Calvin and John Wesley? You know, who was more godly? Those guys couldn't be in the same church together. Presbyterians and Methodists. Don't you know that J.I. Packer, Paul, and D. Lloyd Martin Jones, two amazingly godly men in England, they fought over stuff. Two of our heroes, we have their books on our shelves, probably, many of us. They had some real struggles with each other. I, no, I don't think Paul's naive. I just think he knows stuff about the Lord. And he's not going to let the circumstances dictate the truth about Jesus. He's going to ask that the truth about Jesus control the circumstances. And so I just think Paul knows. Jesus' hearts, his heart burns for unity. Jesus' heart burns for unity. That Jesus is, and that, that, divisions and quarrels in his church it some people may be right some people may be wrong there's almost always an admixture but it's always a concession it's always not what he wants he wants unity and paul knows that secondly paul is paul knows that jesus is far and away worthy of our striving for unity so he's calling the church to it because jesus deserves it He deserves that we strive for unity. His blood poured out on Calvary for us all means that he is saying, this is what it's worth. This is what your unity is worth. It's worth my precious blood. And so you need to be striving for that. And lastly, Jesus, Paul knows that Jesus' spirit is able to do more than all we ask or imagine. He knows that Jesus' spirit is able to do miraculous things with born-again people, things that those born-again people think that Jesus could never do. It, it, it can make you choke up to think about it, because one of the most scandalous things in Acts is when Paul and Barnabas, these two buddies who have thrown in together for the gospel for season after season after season, they have this fight. And you know what? They have a little church split between the two of them. Paul goes this way. Barnabas goes this way. They both have probably godly motives, but their convictions don't match up and they can't keep walking together. And it's just, it's just like, you know, Luke doesn't spend a long time on it, but it's just heartbreaking. It's like, how could that happen? This is Paul and Barnabas. I mean, it's already happening. Barnabas is the guy who brought Paul into the Christians and said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He's a good man. And they split up. They have, a, they have a sharp disagreement, it says. But then years later, you read in Paul's letters. 
You see these hints that there's been a reconciliation. There's been a reconsideration. And it's just, it's a beautiful thing to see God's faithfulness. He gives us a little crack into the window that his work is not done, that he, his spirit is keep, keeps working for their unity. And so, you know, just like I said, this is just really a dull point. Christ is not divided. And so we, we should care deeply about our unity with each other. But it's so easy to forget like this basic uh, imperative of unity, isn't it? Like when you hear a verse like this, and I got the first part of it. Can we go to the next slide? As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you received. Now, this verse, this passage goes on. And so my question for you is, as you're sitting here in your chairs... If you didn't know this sermon was coming this morning, you didn't know this section we're in right now, but you saw that verse and nothing else, and someone said, predict what's going to come next in the verses. What would you think would be next? What do you think Paul would unpack as the manner that's worthy of God's call on your life? What, is the, what, is, what does it mean for Paul for you to live a life worthy of the gospel? Where does your mind go? Because here's where my mind goes. My mind goes to quiet times. My mind goes to whether I've watched shows I shouldn't watch, whether I've looked at things I shouldn't look at, purity issues. My mind goes to whether I'm sharing the gospel with anyone. My mind goes to whether eternal things in heaven and hell, you know, are on my mind. Those are all crucial, huge, important things. But that's not where Paul goes. In his very next breath, here's where Paul goes. Here's what it looks like to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Verse 2, next verse. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to. One hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. You can hear echoes of what Paul's just asked the Corinthians in this. Is Christ divided? One, 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 one. Before you two wrote that song, Paul had it. The only logical, and I'm so old, right? It used to be like I could make a U2 reference and the kids would be like, yeah! Now they're like, what? What are you talking about? Who, who... Who are seven? What is the... Oh, man. Get it back on track. But, but Paul's point is that the only logical and deserved response to the fact that we have one Lord, one hope, one faith, one Father, is that we would experience oneness. But in this passage, we see that Paul is transparently realistic about the challenge of oneness, right? Paul speaks to this church... As if it's a marriage. But a marriage that's going to have to learn to be a veteran marriage. Forged on the rocks of much time. And many trials. And in this passage we see that Paul's really saying. Your unity is going to be experienced. Not only miraculously through the spirit. But through rough roads. Here's why I think that. Rough roads are the kind of roads that, that draw out the need for every effort rough roads are the kind of roads that draw out patience and bearing with one another in love rough roads require humbleness gentleness when you want to be arrogant and when you want to be harsh rough roads are the only kind of roads that require the hard work of love 
right? Easy relationships don't require effort. They don't require patience. They don't require humility. Only hard relationships do. And so Paul has realistic relationships in mind when he says, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Make every effort. Not coasting. Not coasting. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. And many find it. Narrow is the road that leads to life. And few find it. Make every effort, therefore, Jesus says, to enter through the narrow gate. For many will want to go in, but will not be able to. Because wide and easy and smooth is the road of destruction. And hard and long is the road of salvation. And that is not exclusive to our relationship with God. It has every implication for our relationship with each other. Paul is not telling us here that we can't have disagreements. I don't think Paul's telling us here that we can't leave churches. I think this speaks to the care and love that we want to pursue with each other, no matter disagreements, no matter where, what church we end up in. But in this, in this section, I was just burdened that the Lord wants me and you, you know, apart from figuring out the details of specific disagreements, apart from figuring out, you know, the church situation or, or other churches for you or it is really, he just wants us to start with just this confession that unity is his holy passion. Unity around Christ, the truth of Christ, but that unity expressing itself in love for one another. That we would see that his command for unity is a holy, holy thing to him. And that it matters deeply to his heart. That he poured out his blood for that. That unity in the final analysis expresses to the world whether we follow Jesus or whether we don't. That we would bow our hearts to his longing for unity. That we would pray for it and grieve over it until it's accomplished. Wherever and however he calls us. In specific situations, disagreements, specific churches. May the Lord help us to love and long for unity. Regardless of disagreements, regardless of what church we, we are in or end up in. May he help us to love unity and long for it. The second point I thought about this morning as I looked over and thought about Corinthians was, was just this one. Do not judge before the time. Do not judge before the time. Now this comes from a passage that we looked at just a few weeks ago. So I don't want to belabor it too much because we did walk through this passage <clears throat> only a few weeks ago. But I, I think it's so related to the point we just talked about. And, and it, it can remove such a significant obstacle to the point we just talked about. That I just want to touch on it even if j- just briefly. In First Corinthians 4, Paul says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm... I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Who will bring light, the things now hidden, 
in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Again, who does that? The Lord brings to light the things that are what? Now hidden in darkness. And what does he do? He discloses the purposes of the heart. Who does it? God does. And Paul goes on, I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollo for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. So for, for those of you who are here, remember the context. If those of you who weren't, here's the context. <laughs> the Corinthians had decided, essentially, it seems, that they could see really into people's hearts much further than they really should have been able to claim. That they could discern error and pass judgments that really only God could. That they could see the motives. They could see the purposes of people's hearts. And they had apparently assigned selfish motives to Paul's heart. And Paul is saying to them, you are going farther than you should. You're going farther than the word of God allows you. You're acting as if you are God and can see and judge my heart motives. And remember we talked about the fact that Paul wasn't saying that, that we can't call out clear sin. There are times where in love we must call out clear sin. And we'll see that very soon in chapter 5 and forward. Paul is saying that we get to places where we can decide we know more than we actually do. And we make assumptions and we jump to conclusions. And we start playing God with people's hearts. And we start playing God with people's hearts. We're headed to trouble. This might be the first thing under the, if, if I was to call the sermon lessons I'm trying to learn. This would be one of, the, this would be the first section for me personally. But I've seen it, you know, around. I've seen it in my own heart and I've seen it in others' hearts. It's so destructive. You know, when, when people come to conclusions without asking questions, I've seen myself do it and I hate it. And I've seen brothers and sisters do it to each other and it's heartbreaking. When I was a kid, I saw this old school Star Trek episode called Day of the Dove. Any Trekkies in here remember Day of the Dove? Ah, oh, I knew that hand was going up, Christian Lombarger. Okay, this is a classic Trek episode. But be careful with the kids and guys, especially. Star Trek wasn't always great with, uh, with the, it's just not the purest show sometimes. Um, so I just want to put that little caveat there. But you know, you're 10 years old and those things, by God's grace, very often go like that. But so the Klingons in this episode, they claim, they, they all land on the planet together. The Klingons and the crew of the Enterprise, they're all on this little planet together, this terrible cheesy set. I mean, every planet looked like the stage with like some trees on it. Such a bad. But anyway, they're all, they all end up on this planet together somehow magically. And the Klingons say the Enterprise fired on our ship and destroyed our ship. And they, they're ready to attack Captain Kirk and his crew. Meanwhile, Mr. Chekhov of the Enterprise crew, he just goes for it and starts beating down on the Klingons because he says, you killed my brother. And he's Russian, so that was a Russian accent. Well, it turns out, you find out in the show, that the Enterprise did not fire on the Klingon ship. And it turns out, and this is awesome, you find out later that Chekhov doesn't even have a brother. Dun, 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 dun. But what you do find out is that there is this being of pure energy that feeds off anger and feeds off accusation and feeds off judging and hatred. And he is able, this being, to plant thought. I mean, he's this disembodied, like, ball of light. And, and he's able to plant thoughts into people's minds to make them accuse each other so they can grow in conflict. And he can feed off that conflict and grow in strength. Does that remind you of any being in the universe you've ever heard of? <laughs> in Revelation 12.10, Satan is given this really profound name. 
He's called the accuser of our brothers. Who accuses them day and night before God. Isn't that crazy? Satan is in God's presence in some way. That's hard to understand. Accusing you before God. And you remember the garden. What's the first thing Satan does with Adam and Eve? He accuses God before them. Accusation is Satan's business. He accuses us before God and he accuses God before others. And do you know what he also does? Through our sinful flesh, he accuses us before each other. I'm not talking about redemptive fact-finding, right? Where you're trying to establish every matter and sin has to be confronted. I'm talking about a different kind of thing. Where Satan wants us to live off and feed off of division and accusation and outrage and hatred towards each other. I, I just, I have found it so helpful over the last few months just to remember this simple truth. This simple truth. Satan wants me to hate you. Satan wants me to accuse my wife. He wants me to accuse my kids. He wants me to accuse you. He, he loves that. He feeds off it. Woo! He grows off that energy. Satan wants me to judge you and he wants you to judge me. He wants me to hate you. He wants you to hate me. He wants me to look at you and say, oh, I can't believe them. And he wants you to look at me and look at everyone and say, oh, I can't believe them. And when that's happening, it's just so helpful to remember who is pleased. Jesus is not pleased. Satan is pleased. We're serving his purposes in those moments. It's just so interesting. Just to, it's so good to have like the, the, the alarm on your brain that just is able to tell you, oh, you and Satan are buddies right now. <laughs> you know, that's not a great place for you, Albert. Who's your buddy today? Oh, it's Satan? You might want to rethink that. So I, I think the Lord, through Paul, he wants us to turn from the pride of thinking we can see and we can see enough to accuse each other and leave what we don't know to the Lord. To let him judge when he is ready. To let him bring to light when he brings it to light. And instead he says this. Be humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So practically what, what can help us with this? Matthew 5:54 says that we're to love our enemies. You know the world loves to hate its enemies. Let's not be like the world. Let's not only be redemptive when we need to confront about sin, but let's also be careful to not think we can judge more than we can and think that we know more than we do about each other's hearts and instead give each other the benefit of the doubt where we can and trust that the Lord will reveal. I've often thought that I would think I would please the Lord more. Absolutely, I think this is true. If I, in my weakness and in my inability to understand all things, I think the Lord would be much more pleased if I thought well of a terribly evil man than if I thought evil of him. And got it right by accident. Just because I guessed right in my anger and hatred of that person. Does that make sense? I think God would rather me think innocently well of an evil person. 
because he had not revealed what I could know rather than just accidentally get it right and hate on an evil guy, you know, just because I'm just so interested in just throwing darts at the dartboard, closing my eyes, hoping I'm going to get something right and something sticks, you know. But God says this, he says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. If we're to love our enemies, like the guys in ISIS, you know, how much more are we supposed to pray for the brothers and sisters around whom you, you, you are around, in whom you, about whom you feel in yourself this creep of judgment and anger? How much more are, you, are you, we called to love each other that way and pray for each other that way? That's a command from Jesus. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. How much more should we love each other through rough times and through disagreements and pray for each other? He will bless us when we do that. By the way, that is great therapy. <laughs> that is amazing therapy. To feel the anger towards someone to start to grow in your heart and just to have this Pavlov's dogs develop response where you just immediately just say, oh, I'm praying for that guy, you know? Phil, you know, I'll just use this anonymous name. So, <laughs> Philip, just like, oh, Philip did that thing. He said that thing. He's, he's just so angry with me or he hates me or he's after me or whatever. Oh, I got to pray for Philip now. <laughs> you know, after a while, that's what happens. Your own, Satan's own work to get you to hate that person becomes like a, a, uh, like a little candy to, to remind you, like a Pavlov's dog's auto response to get you to pray for him. If you practice prayer for your enemies long enough, it will be an autoimmune response where this, the hatred that Satan brings up in your heart, the accusation will be, as you obey Jesus and run to him to pray for that person, it will be a launching pad that will autoimmune you to start praying for that person if you do it long enough. And God will just bless your socks off for that. And you know what? Your heart will be cleansed by that. Instead of being a toxic place, it will be a clean place. And you will feel a lot better. I mean, apart from whatever prayers do for that Phil guy, it's just a great feeling to not hate people and to just love people and to trust them to the Lord and to trust your life to the Lord. Another thing to do, First Peter 5 says, be alert. This is just going back to what we said earlier. Be alert. Peter's saying, be aware, folks. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking to devour you. Satan is not passive. He's not lazy. He's not indifferent. He is after us. And he's not after us necessarily to possess us or get us five feet off the bed like this in the movies. I mean, far and away, the way he works is just to get us to sin terribly. And particularly to get us to hate each other. And so Paul is saying, or Peter is saying in 1 Peter 5, just be aware, be alert to that fact. Satan wants you to accuse others. We talked about that before. Uh, thirdly, just ask questions. You know, this is just something I really need to grow in, I really want to grow in. When you are struggling relationally with someone, perhaps it is time to just prayerfully and honestly ask questions. Proverbs 20 verse 5 says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding... We'll draw it out. The purposes of a man's heart are deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. And so asking questions is a key to understanding as opposed to coming to conclusions beforehand. And perhaps the best person to ask a question about first is to, is to ask the question of yourself. Start with yourself and say, Lord, am I, am I at a place where I want this person's good? Or do I just want to corner them? Because I just see them as the problem. And that's all they are is they're a problem to me. And I don't want their good. 
Because if you can ask that question of yourself and answer it honestly, then you'll know whether you're ready to go to them or whether you need to spend maybe some more time prayerfully asking God to help you want their good and to turn down the presumption and invite humility into your heart. I don't know all things. That's why you're telling me to ask questions. And then when God helps you see that you're, you're still struggling, you know, you're not perfect, but in a spirit of humility, you can come in. I want to ask you some questions. And notice the proverb doesn't say, through your many questions, you will find out that you were right all along. That's a great proverb. That would be like my proverb. The purposes of a man's heart are like deep water. But when you ask questions, it confirms exactly what you thought. No, it says there's, they're deep waters. You can't see them. You can't know them. You ask questions to draw them out. So be careful because just as it's likely that you'll find out the motives that maybe you thought were there and they'll learn something and you'll learn something, there'll be repentance and restoration. There's also a strong possibility that you won't see what you think you're supposed to see and you'll, you'll continue to have to reserve judgment and, and give that judgment to God and fight to believe the best. Whew. Last one. Christ and him crucified. Nothing but Christ and him crucified. Finally, this last principle for this morning comes from chapter 2 where Paul says the following. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquent or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Remember the context here. The Corinthians were being led astray to focus on prioritizing human wisdom and human strength and human gifts over God's strength and God's power and God's wisdom in human weakness. And Paul said, I am coming to you, not with a Harvard degree and a great outfit. I am coming to you with stuttering lips, a third grade vocabulary, nothing outward that would attract you to me. In fact, I'm coming looking very unimpressive. I come having been beaten to a pulp in the last few cities I came from, still carrying the limp, the broken ribs, and a swollen eye. I've got no skinny jeans. No $3 million building to entice you with. I've got no sleek-looking ministry brochures. I've got no five-year plan. I've got the gospel and a lot of weakness and poverty and hardship. Slander. Persecution. Loneliness. That's what I've got. That's what I'm coming to you with. That's what Christ may invite you to. And you know what? Through the weakness of what I haven't got on a human level, you will see what God can do on a spiritual level. And you won't be fooled into thinking it was any of those other things, my building or my skinny jeans or my great ministry plan. You will see that it's God's power. And you know, I... I'm sure you guys, I, I can become so discouraged by all the protracted troubles, and the layers of troubles of ministry, and all that I don't have as a pastor, all that we don't have, that I can forget and neglect 
and implicitly disregard the one thing I do have that makes any human strength or power or wisdom pale in comparison. I have and you have the gospel of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. I have and you have an open door to his throne of grace for all of our trials, all of our temptations, all of our sins. I have and you have his holy word to feed on daily. As we struggle with what we struggle with in our material blessings in China, there are millions of people with nothing but burned out churches and threats of persecution and barely have, you know, his word who are filled with joy because they have enough. I have and you have the conviction that life on this earth is very short and that all people are going to face judgment to either heaven or they're going to hell forever. I have and you have a call from God wherein he will fill us with power when we give ourselves to be about making disciples of each other in this room and out there, in our families, among our friends, among our care group members, among our lost neighbors. I have and you have all those things wherever we are. That's what we have. That's what makes a church a church. Nothing else but those things make a church a church. And so even in our poverty, in this season of where we are as a church, we have the most important thing. We have the treasure of the gospel. We have that treasure to guard in our hearts. And we have a call to fulfill from God, to serve one another in love, in light of that gospel, in which the Lord promises as we give ourselves to that, that he will give his power. Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. tells a story. It's a metaphor about how a church can come under spiritual attack. It's really provoking to me. It really spoke to my heart. Here's his metaphor. A band of thieves, a band of thieves Now, the thieves are spiritual enemies, okay? Let's start right there. This is not about anybody in this room. A band of thieves staked out a town, scheming to hold it up the local bank. But the town was pretty well guarded. The robbers cannot find a way to speak, to sneak in without being detected. There were no suitable access points for them to launch an attack, but they were determined to stick up this town and score big. They only needed a plan. And after some deliberation, they devised a strategy and went to work. Several of the thieves went out of the town to the local stables and set them on fire. And then they fled the town. The townspeople rushed out to the stables to put out the fire. The sheriff's deputies took off from the bank. In hot pursuit of the bandits that fled the town. And as they went out to the town to put out the fires and chase the fleeing suspects, the remaining robbers walked in the door of the bank and took all the money and left. Took all the gold and left. And this pastor who told H.B. Charles this story looked at H.B. Charles and he said to him, this is is as H.B. Charles was starting his pastorate at some church, he said, guard the bank. The enemy of our souls and the enemy of God's people would have us so lost and confused and disordered that we would neglect what is most important and most clear before us and fail to guard the bank. The bank is all the things I just said that we have in Christ. 
We must not let what is confusing right now keep us from what is clear right now. We must not let what we don't know right now keep us from doing what we do know to do. We must guard the gospel each day in our own personal lives, in our own hearts, reminding ourselves that we are great sinners, but we have a greater Savior who has made us new in him. That is guarding the bank. We must come to our Heavenly Father daily with boldness and plead for grace for ourselves, for our church, and our witnesses individually and together. We must offer our lives daily to him to take up our cross, to deny ourselves and follow him, trusting that his Holy Spirit will fill our feeble and imperfect offering with amazing power to do his will. That is guarding the bank to take up our cross daily. We must let the word of Christ dwell in us richly as the Bible commands, not neglecting his truth. But remembering that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is guarding the bank. We must not neglect meeting together, whether it's here or in care groups or less formally coffee shops at each other's homes. But we must seek to make disciples of one another, building each other up in the truth of the gospel. That is guarding the bank. We must encourage each other to keep believing in Jesus. There are people in this room who struggle to hold on to the gospel. They need your encouragement to keep fighting and not give up and end up shipwrecked in their faith. You must exhort them and each other to keep obeying him, to keep loving each other, stirring one another up to do good works as God gives opportunity. That is guarding the bank. We must look out for each other's souls and if necessary for each other's material needs. That is guarding the bank. We must keep sowing the gospel into our kids with faithfulness and patience and keep getting off the ground as we struggle because parenting is so hard. That is guarding the bank. We must keep sowing into our marriages, fighting, fighting, fighting to be grace givers and not self-seekers. Fighting to be husbands that lead with tenderness and consideration of our wives. And wives who fight to follow imperfect husbands, not because their husbands are worth following, but because God has commanded it and he is trustworthy to give us grace to do it. That is guarding the bank. We must be unifiers. We must seek to confess our sins to each other and forgive each other. We must seek to confess our sins to each other and forgive each other as Christ has forgiven us in the gospel. That is guarding the bank. That's the bank, folks. Whether you are in this church or on your way out of this church, that's not the point. God may do either thing in his wisdom with you. But guard that bank. Those are the ancient pathways. Those are the pathways that were before the Corinthians and are still there for us. Those are the pathways that transcend polity forms and home church structures and this leadership or that leadership or this building campaign or that lack of building campaign. These, these pathways transcend extra local affili- affiliation. Amazingly gifted apostolic leaders or below average pastors. Now, I'm not saying those things are not important. Leaders, buildings. I'm not saying that. 
They can be helps, some of them great helps to the gospel's advancement. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is that those things are not of first importance. The gospel is, and caring for each other is, and that is here for us to do. See, those, those secondary things, they don't make a church a church. Christ and him crucified, carried in his people, living in the hearts of his people, who are seeking to express that in love for each other, and obeying his commandments and helping others to do the same. That's the church. And if the bank is neglected and, and if the bank is left vulnerable, nothing else will matter. None of those affiliations, new pastors, buildings. It'll just be plants, seeds put in dying dead ground and soil that won't bear fruit, won't nourish those seeds. Guard the bank. Let's keep Christ and him crucified central. Let's keep seeking him daily in our own personal lives. Let's keep fighting the right fight to love one another. Let's give ourselves to seeking the welfare of those who are in need in this church and the lost around us. Let's guard the bank and ask the Lord to help us. Amen. Thank you guys for bearing with me. I I just, again, just pray that, that you were not offended. You may not agree with this message or parts of it i can understand that after everything we've been through but i pray that you would know that um i want to serve you and i and i hope that god has served you through it this morning even if i have not (laughs) in some ways may the lord serve you in his purposes let's pray lord god thank you so much for your word and your truth and i pray lord that you would help us help us lord to seek unity with each other Help us, Lord, to uh, not judge before the appointed time, but to think the best of one another. Help us, Lord God, to guard the bank of the gospel and of Christ and him crucified as above all things. Lord, would you please help me to repent of all these things that I need repentance in personally? God, would you please protect me from being a hypocrite? And I pray, God, that you would help my brothers and sisters to help me with that as well. Thank you, God, so much for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.